From Hong Kong, this is Mea Kulpa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based on the Postmortem Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. I'm Jeffrey Brewer, and today we talk to Atim Batra, general partner at 27 Ventures, a global VC firm that invests in edtech, future of work startups, and he's also an ex-entrepreneur. He loves the sport of ultramarathon trail running. Welcome, Atin. Thank you, Jeffrey. Good to be here. Um, Atin, how did you make your way into startups? Um, that's actually one of the mistakes that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I started out in a corporate, actually. And then for some reason, being the young hothead that I was, I thought that I could probably do better um, as an entrepreneur. Um, so I worked for a corporate for about two years. I uh, did not enjoy the whole large team, lots of politics, lots of red, red tapeism. Um, and so I wanted to get out of that mindset. So I said, why don't I start my own company? I'll be the boss of myself. Um, I'll be able to build a team. We'll have lots of fun. Um, and so that was really the the starting point of that. So I moved. So I'd been working in India uh, with this media conglomerate um, as a brand manager for them. Um, and then I moved to Hong Kong to start my own company. And that was seven years ago now. It's been a while. Okay. Quite often, it's it's a discussion uh, quite often going on. Some people are on the team of directly out of college or university, you should start your own business. Others say maybe four or five years in corporate and then start something. What's your pick on this one? Which team? Yeah, I'm actually on the, the latter side of that discussion, which is that you should get some experience at a it doesn't have to be a corporate, but you should get some experience at a mature company, some someone who's been around for a while um, before you start your own company, before you become an entrepreneur. And the only reason for that is because um, you make a lot of mistakes when you start out. And the more I think about it, the better it is to be making mistakes on someone else's dime than on your own money. So if I can make mistakes while I'm working for someone else who will hopefully uh, excuse those, then that's better for me to learn um, in that position before I go out and start my own company and, and put everything on the line for myself. So that's that's yeah. what my suggestion is always. Yeah, this sounds a little bit like uh, uh, my father when I just got my driver's license and uh, he, he had a car. Uh, actually, at that point, it was a company car even. So he said, why don't you just take my car? And <laughs> if you crash it, like... You don't, you're not crashing your own car. Right. So something similar in, the, in that yep. sense, indeed. Okay. Yep. So tell me a little bit more about you. Like what uh, you already said, you, uh, you started in corporate, but why at that point was there missing in corporate that at that point made you decide to do something else? Yeah, I'm happy to share the story. I think the one thing that most people don't know about me, even today, actually, is that when I was an undergrad, um, I used to run a, um, a nonprofit uh, with my wife, actually. So now my now wife, then friend, she had co-founded a nonprofit that was organizing uh, events to teach soft skills to um, undergrad students and high school students in India. So this was back home. Um, and We'd been organizing events for 500 people and 700 attendees all at one go. Like they would come 
to our home city for four days, we would take care of everything for them, right down to you know all of the logistics of actually boarding, lodging, but also um, in terms of the substance, the the content. So we would emulate, for example, one of our um, flagship events was the Model United Nations Conference. So that format, you basically are simulating the United Nations. So you would have multiple committees. All of the participants would be diplomats uh, from different countries, and they would have to. Um, present themselves and and the country's view as as their own. So we did a lot of those events when, and I was only 17, 18 um, years old when we did that. And that was a formative experience. Still today, that actually remains a formative experience for me because as a 17 year old, I was in charge of a team of 70 people, 7-0, ensuring that they delivered on their tasks and ensuring that they put the whole event together in in a high class quality way. Um, I'm not saying that I was a good leader. In fact, I should say that I was a horrible leader. Uh, my wife is a much better um, leader than me. But that really taught me a lot of things uh, about being a leader, about building a team, about building a culture. And and the uh, there are two feelings that I took out from, there are two ex- learnings that I took from that experience. One was the fact that I could, if I wanted, build anything from scratch. I didn't have to build on someone else's work. And the second was that I could um, make make an impact. So even the smallest of actions that I was taking in in that scenario, in that situation, they were having huge impacts, not only on the outcomes in the moment, but also 10 years later. So in fact, funnily enough, we're just celebrating um, uh, one of one of the couples that got together in that event 12 years ago is getting married tomorrow. So we've been celebrating this entire week. The fact that they met because I was a horrible leader and I fired someone and then brought in an ex person to replace. And then that person sort of fell in love with this woman and now they're getting married tomorrow. And it's just an amazing story, but the impacts of some of our decisions live for so long that in this particular case, of course, it was a it ended up being a positive result, but it could have just as easily been a very negative result for us. And so, uh, one of the things that I learned, as I was saying, was the impact that you have, uh, far-reaching consequences. You should really be uh, mindful of that. So, that was sort of um, the start of of me wanting to be, again, use a cliche, but master of my own destiny. Um, and so, after B school, I got an opportunity to work for a large company. Paying a lot of money, I said, "Why not? Let's do that." Um, did that, and then through the period of, of working for them for about two years, I kept going back to those experiences of, of undergrad years of actually building those events and the nonprofit myself. And um, I did not enjoy the lack of agency, the fact that I could not choose uh, to do what I thought was in the best interests of uh, the company, of the product that we that we were building, and that I had to sort of follow what someone else uh, was presenting, even though in my mind, they was a little disconnected from what was happening on the ground. And that was just a, a very, I'm, I'm a very positive person. So for me to start having those thoughts means there is definitely something wrong. And so I just knew that I had to get out of that uh, situation, which is why I said, let's just start something of my own. I mean, I've done it before, I should be able to do it again. And so I, um, I went out and became an entrepreneur. Okay, so... You were working corporate. Uh, you decided to do at that point something for yourself. Uh, did you prepare for that in the sense of like, hey, I want to 
set some goals for myself. I'm going to do this. And, and also at that point, uh, answer uh, what it uh, what it was. But I'm going to do this. And in 12 months or 16 months, I want to be there or I want to become somewhere there. And at that point, did you give yourself a particular runway saying, I, I saved up, this is the amount of runway that I have to make this work? Or did you just go in there unprepared and just started working on that? So I did prepare a little bit in the sense that I started. So the company that I was going to found was a digital marketing agency. So before I jumped headfirst into that, I did freelance uh, for about three, four months, uh, built up a client portfolio. I had a book of business that was a steady client flow into the company before I actually left my job and then started working on this full time. So in a way, I was prepared. But in another way, I wasn't actually because I did not have any goals for myself. Uh, in fact, my only goal was to keep running this business for as long as I would, as I could. Um, I don't think I ever, the thought never entered into my mind that I would fail and that I would have to go back to maybe finding a job or, or doing something else. Uh, that's something that I, is a personality trait for me. I've just never been the kind of person who thinks about failure. I'm much more of a go all in and, and we will definitely succeed. Very optimistic about that. Um, so yeah, I did not plan for anything. Actually, I did not have any goals. The only goal was that I would just keep making money from this and keep growing it. That's it. And that I, I would not recommend that to anyone. Actually, I think that was a big mistake. I would not recommend that to anyone. So doing that, uh, you just started. Uh, how did it uh, end it, that uh, venture in uh, marketing? Yeah, um, so that was the the other big learning that I had from that experience, which was um, sometimes entrepreneurship means doing things you don't like. Building a business doesn't only mean working on, so for example, for me, it was I was building a digital marketing agency, but it didn't mean that I was going to be digital. I was going to be working on digital marketing all day long. In fact, a large portion of my day was either spent in personnel management because I had a team of five or it was sent, spent in business development. I would I was doing sales pitches um, or it was sent, spent, you know, doing uh, financial accounting. Um, so there was just, there are just so many um, areas of administration for a business that you have to take care of when you're the, the head of the business. Um, and so I realized very quickly that I have a, there is a disconnect here. And that I love the substantive part of building the business, which is actually working on the the digital marketing and the brand building and all of that. But I did not enjoy the admin parts of it. And yes, I could have hired someone for it, and, and I looked for and I tried to, but it didn't. It just never worked out for me. And so at some point, I just again got into this negative mindset where I did not enjoy what I was doing. It was not fun, um, and I decided that I had to try and make a change and find something else to do. Fortunately, um, at that point, I had friends in the ecosystem, including yourself uh, and a lot of other people here in the Hong Kong uh, tech startup ecosystem. Um, and someone recommended my name to a corporate accelerator. So which was, uh, it's an accelerator that is run by, used to be run by uh, Swire Properties, which is a huge conglomerate here in Hong Kong. The accelerator was called Blueprint. They were looking for someone to lead the accelerator. Um, they were looking for someone with connections in the Hong Kong startup ecosystem, someone who could mentor and, and lead the program. 
uh, one of my friends recommended my name for it. The process just kept went by really quickly. In fact, I think it was from uh, first interview to offer in in about a month or maybe even less. Um, and at that point, I was already in the process of winding down my consultancy, so it just made a lot of sense to actually make that switch. That's how I entered the second phase of my career, which is sort of when I became an investor, uh, really a supporter of startups. And that's that's what I've been for the last five years. Okay. And what did you learn like running a accelerator, a corporate accelerator? I learned I don't like corporates. I relearned I don't like corporates. Um, but no, it was a, it was a fun experience. I, um, you know, an accelerator, and you know this very well because you've been part of that, but an accelerator is very different from investing as a VC. Because an accelerator, you're not really just an investor. You're a part of the team, really, uh, because you sit with them on a daily basis and you work with them on on all matters of, of business. Uh, and really, in some sometimes it, it also used to happen that, you know, one of the companies was short, short-staffed at a particular point of time, could not really handle the, the workload. And, and I would just have to pitch in. I would actually sit with them, answer customer support emails. Or I would sit with them and, and uh, you know, write up the Facebook posts. So I've done all of that. And that was an eye-opening experience in another way because, again, I learned supporting startups does not mean just investing in them and, and letting them be. Sometimes it also means that you have to actually get down into the ditches with them. Um, and that that had always been an ethos for me, but it was really drilled into me again through that experience. Um, and then, yeah, I also, like I said at the very top, I, I learned that I don't like corporates again. Uh, so um, I would clarify that statement. I think so. The, the company is great. I like really the people that I worked with. Uh, I'm still friends with them. Still talk to them. Uh, still connect with them. Um, and this is on the on the corporate side. But I think what I what I started to miss was this lack of a uh, of full alignment between what the corporate wanted out of the program and and wanted to gain, whereas what the startups wanted to gain and and and. Um, their expectations were slightly misaligned. And that became a, a sticking point for me. Um, fortunately, the the accelerator was winding down in any case at some point. Um, and so when that was happening, I took my learnings and I went and applied them somewhere else. Are there any things that you did at that point uh, during the accelerator that now in hindsight weren't, wasn't the best thing to do or maybe you gave some advice to a startup that in hindsight yeah didn't work out for them or maybe at that point you say like hey like i really liked that startup that we're going through but yeah they end up uh failing like is, is there any learnings that you had during the your time in the, at the accelerator there oh lots lots um i learned to be an investor through that ex that experience of, of being the head of an accelerator really um Many times I, I sort of, actually, let me rephrase that. I learned the the art of being an investor from the experience of actually running that, that accelerator, for sure. Some of the things that I learned were, once again, um, back the team more than the business, really. Um, I Over the period of, of a year and a half that I worked with that accelerator, Again and again, the companies that were not doing well or that I wasn't able to to help out to the fullest that I had wanted, I kept noticing the same theme over and over. And the theme was that 
there was something off with the founding team. Um, maybe it was a culture misfit. Maybe it was they were not getting along. Uh, maybe it was just ego, and and there is a lot of that in human nature. Um, and and every time that that kind of a situation arose, the company would spiral downward. They were not doing well, and so that experience drilled it into me that if you're investing in a business, you're investing in the team, and that has to be the topmost uh, criteria for you. In terms of advice that I gave to entrepreneurs, yeah, definitely. I mean, there were some companies where I advised them to um, to go after a consumer market instead of a B2B market, which was completely wrong because their, uh, their strengths, the team's strengths were much more suited to an enterprise market. So that was a misjudgment on my end. I should not have made that suggestion. Um, there were times when so this is back in 2015. The economy was fairly okay, but there was also at that point, if you remember, the Hong Kong uh, startup ecosystem was sort of trying to shift towards China instead of being international, usually broadly international, but now shifting towards China. Um, and I let my personal judgment and thoughts on that cloud the advice that I would give some of the startups where they kept asking, well, should we also go after the Chinese market? And I kept saying no. Um, because I thought that the global market was was much bigger and that's what they should be um, targeting, which was wrong because the Chinese, the mainland Chinese market is so much closer from a cultural standpoint to the Hong Kong market that if they were to actually make that leap across the border, they would have been very, very successful. Um, I regret that highly, actually. Um, and I've, I've said this to the founders themselves. Uh, I've called them up and said, I'm sorry, <laughs> I've made a mistake. But um, yeah, I mean, there's... There's lots of stories. Uh, I mean, I had 30 different companies that I was working with on a on a very very close basis. So there will there are bound to be like a hundred stories. So we don't have enough time. It's a little bit like a previous podcast. We also talked about mental whiplash, mm -hmm. making yeah all the advice that you get. Like mentor A says go left. Mentor B says go right. Mentor C is like straight ahead and that usually at that point is the struggle but also the uh the art of being a founder or an entrepreneur to make sense out of all those conflicting advice and then at that point uh, make your own plan still but that yeah. is fair but you know uh, i will say something jeff um there are two things that i learned specifically in respect to the comment that you're making there are two things that i learned one is uh, there is responsibility on the mentors also. Uh, they should, and this is what I've tried to imbibe since even though I've, I'm not great at it even today, but the mentors should take into account the circumstances of the founding team of the company when they give their advice. A lot of times mentors just spout these generic statements. Oh, you know, B2B is better than consumer. But what if the founders are better at consumer marketing? Right, so I think that is there. That responsibility lies on the on the mentor's shoulder. That they should rethink all of their assumptions in light of uh, the founding team and and their situation. So that's one. The second um, responsibility that I think the mentor should bear is the fact that you should also never try and force your advice on someone. What the mentor should also do is is leave their ego aside and say, "This is my advice to you." 
but you're the best decision maker. So you make your decision. And irrespective of whatever decision you make, I'm still going to be here by your side. A lot of times what happens is mentors give advice and say, well, if you do this, if you agree with me, great, I'm here. If you don't agree with me, then I'm I'm not an advisor. I'm not an, a mentor anymore. And that's that's not fair. You're basically blackmailing the, the founder into following. And not every founder... Um, you know, likes confrontation, right? If it's, if it's a nice person who doesn't like to argue, maybe they just go with your advice and, and that screws their whole company up. Uh, one of the things that a lot of investors, I don't think I've realized yet, but are certainly starting to talk about it is you as an investor or in this particular case, a mentor, you're diversified, right? You're working with 10 different companies. Your advice may go wrong in one company. You've still got nine other companies that will probably work out and have a chance of success. But think about the founder. The founder is not diversified. They've only got one chance of this. They're only working on one company. If that company fails, sure, they could. if they're a great founder, they can go and start another company. But there will be emotional scarring from that process. And I think investors sometimes forget that. Oh, yeah. Uh, mentors slash advisors is also one of uh, my pet peeves quite often because yeah especially in the beginning when the whole quote quote accelerators in hong kong started i often just call them programs because they're not really accelerators but yeah. uh, then you for instance saw that the head of internal audit was one of the mentors in an accelerator and it might be a great yeah person to to be a mentor to you if you're doing a startup in internal audits but for all the other startups in that accelerator that still will encounter that mentor and that mentor is only there because the corporate where he's working for is sponsoring that accelerator and then i'm really at that point say to founders be very aware what the background is of a of a mentor and why he's there. And in, in previous uh, podcasts also recorded one of the advices that one of the guests, earlier guests had was, does this make sense? I always ask you the question, does this make sense? So if you are in Accelerator uh, or a program at that point and you're doing, I don't know, um, a social media app and you're encountering a mentor uh, uh, that has a uh, uh, background in internal audits, does this make sense? Probably not. Uh, skip no. that one. So, yeah, um, exactly. And then, of course, also the difference between a mentor and an, and an advisor. Um, mostly what you come across in, in uh, programs are advisors in, in my definition space because an advisor in my definition space helps you define uh, which online accounting software you should use or which direction of the of the next step or the next feature of your um, uh, product will be. A mentor, mm. in my uh, opinion, is usually the person who goes with you beyond this one adventure. At that point, the mentor goes, yeah, helps you over your lifetime period or like uh, maybe a Correct. decade. Um, so, uh, but that's... A, that's a definition um, thing for me. So mostly, no, at that I, point. I completely agree with you. I, I actually, um, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but I always think of advisors and mentors in in this framework. An advisor is someone who's a who's an expert at a particular function, at a particular vertical. And if you want to, as 
taking your example, if you want to ask what what accounting software I should use, then you should go to an advisor who has experience in accounting. But a mentor will not give you answers, actually, in my mind. My definition of a mentor is someone who asks questions, not gives you answers. So if I'm a mentor, I always equate mentor and coach as, as being the same person. But if I'm a mentor to a, to a company and they come to me saying, I don't know what to do with, with pricing, then my answer to them will be will not be an answer. It'll be a question. Well, okay, what price did you currently set? What is your competitor's price? What do you think the users are willing to pay? Have you spoken to the users? What is What was their feedback? Um, what is your drop-off rate on your pricing page? Um, what is the, you know, what button do they click most, your users? So asking those kinds of questions, I think, is more the job of a mentor, whereas an advisor is a very focused uh, expert role. That's the way that I define it. When I take that forward into into what an investor, uh, what being an investor means is actually being a mentor, not an advisor. And I think that's maybe something that has now been conflated between those two because you've all we've got all of these funds that are um, so vertically specific or, or differentiated on the basis of, well, I can give you marketing help, which is why I'm an investor and you come to me for that. But that's really more of an advisory role, not really a mentor role. So... I don't know how that works, but um, I think an, an investor is, is is a mentor more than an advisor. At least that's how I think of it. Yeah. So how do you see, because at that point, even um, as an investor, and if you take up that mentor role, there is a yeah, an incentive for, for you or a mentor that is an investor to maybe at that point give a little bit different uh, mentoring questions or mentoring um, uh, direction because they have a specific stake in the game because they invested. There is an upside for them if it goes a, a direction. How do you personally at that point split the uh, the fact that you're an investor and maybe at that point give somebody who you're not an investor in but maybe in the same industry do you still give them the same advice or would the fact that you are a investor in that company alter your interactions with them to be honest i don't have an answer to that <laughs> this is a paradox that i struggle with every other day um, i think being an investor you always have exactly the exact the the situation that you mentioned, which is you could give advice that would be commercially useful for the company, but may not be uh, the right piece of advice, but it'll it'll maybe increase the value of the company and you as an investor will give that advice or else you have the, the fair way of giving a piece of advice that may or may not increase the value of the company. And you always have this choice. Um, in fact, I'll give you an example. So this is a, the, one of my portfolio companies. This happens so often with us. Uh, one of our portfolio companies is raising a bridge round. Now, as an investor, if you believe in the portfolio company, you want to take more stake. You want to double down, right? If you want to take more stake, you now have two options. One is you either convince the company to uh, let you invest at a lower price. Maybe it's equal to the last round because as a as a financial investor, that's in your that's in your favor to be able to invest at a lower price, despite the fact that you're investing two months after or six months after, thereby having de-risked the investment a little bit. But the paradox to that is, as an investor, you also want the company's valuation to go up because that's how 
they can then go out sell go out and market themselves to other investors you will also be able to use that as a marketing player when you go and speak to other people saying well one of my companies has increased their valuation and so that is a paradox that we come up against every six months i'd say every single one of my companies has gone through this i i love the company i love the founders i love the business i want to put more money to work but as a financial person as a financial investor i have to think about how do i get the low, lowest price right but as an as an investor i would want that valuation to go up so i don't i don't have an answer to your question i think um what i've tried to do so far is is to be fair to the investors uh sorry to to be fair to the entrepreneurs um in my mind every time such a such a question has come up um i've always uh kept this mantra which is do what is beneficial to the founder because you are an investor today you may not be an investor tomorrow but you do want to be a friend to the founder for life because if you're investing in someone you're investing because they're good and you want to maintain that relationship so in my current fund at 27 ventures we've got six portfolio companies we've got about 10 different um uh, founders every single one of them i would consider a friend that i want to have for the next 50 years of my life all all of them every single person and so if that is the the guiding principle in your mind then i would do what is fair to them rather than um you know taking a, a decision or forcing a decision that that harms them in the long run yeah i uh, i can understand that it's also uh, i think uh, very depending on uh, the source of the money uh, you're investing in like me as a uh, angel investor uh, it's my own personal money and i have a different view on that of course when i yeah encounter something what you said like a bridge round or something else like that while at that point when you're a vc you have lps and they want also maybe for your next round you want to show return on investments and uh, better valuations uh, for uh, raising your next fund yeah. so i can exactly. definitely understand the the challenge there when doing those kind of things because yeah you you want a higher valuation so at that point you can also raise your next round better talking about that is that what if if you look at that right now as as an investor what is advice that was given to you Uh, in the past that you said yeah i hear that often but i don't think that's good actually it's 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 what we were speaking just recently which is um what we were saying is that as an investor you often have this choice of doing what is right for the founder or doing what is right for the fund and in most cases people will advise doing what is right for the fund because they say that well if you do right what is if you do what is right for the fund today then you'll be able to raise a second fund tomorrow and and then a third one after that um and i've had this advice spouted at me by multiple of people um the way that i look at it is there has to be a way in this world uh to do well while actually doing some good or being fair and so the way that i speak to my lps is i tell them that listen we will definitely strive our best to make a financial return for the fund and for you as investors but if that makes me uh if that forces me into a decision where it has to be at at harm to the founders 
then I will have to make a decision in that situation, which you may or may not like. I don't know what the decision is going to be. I'm not taking that decision today. I'm saying when we get to that point, we will examine the circumstances and make a decision. But it may or may not be in the interest of my LPs. And so my conversation with them has always been, allow me to make that decision. It may be wrong, but I think if we are fair to everyone around us, it will come back to us in a positive way somewhere down the line. And maybe, um, I, I'm sure this doesn't endear me to a lot of LPs, but maybe that means that I don't raise a second fund and that's okay. Uh, perhaps I have to go back and once again, find another job, but um, I value the relationships. Uh, I value the relationships with the, with the LPs as well, actually. And so with my LPs, I, I meet with them every single month. I don't think uh, a lot of fund managers do that. I meet with them every single month. I give them an update, a very detailed update on what's happening with the fund, what's happening with the investments. I make sure that that relationship is alive and well and positive. But I also want to make sure that they understand um, that our primary stakeholders have to be the founders because they're the ones who are creating the value for us. And if they stop creating value or if we impair their ability to create value, then that's a huge negative for us as the investors, both myself as well as the people who've invested in the fund. And uh, what is the most valuable advice or the most advice that most resonated with you that you ever gotten in your, in your working life or maybe even beyond that? The best piece of advice that I've gotten um, is actually from my father, um, who I believe was was quoting a Bollywood movie, by the way. Um, but his advice was, whatever you do, you must try and be the best at it. And that's the best. That's the only thing that you can try and do. And so I always look to him as someone um, who has such a brilliant work ethic. Um, I always joke that uh, if there was a way to actually calculate goodwill in the in the intangible sense of that goodwill, if you could actually calculate that, then I'd say that that I think that he his emotional goodwill is much higher than all of the financial returns that he's earned in his life as a as a salaried employee of now as an entrepreneur. And so um, I always look to him to to learn that from him, and that's his advice has always been be the best of what you do. And so I try and emulate that. I don't think I'm close to being it. Um, but hopefully I'm taking half a step every day towards that goal of being the best at, at what we're what we're doing. Okay. Now you're an investor. You have experience as an entrepreneur, but you're also a ultramarathon runner. How does the ultramarathon running influences your your investment decisions? Like are you uh, before you make a decision, you go for a hundred k run and and then think about it, or how, uh, how how does that work in your in your personal decision making process? Yeah, I don't think I have to go for a hundred k every time I make a decision because I make a decision every month. So I hope I don't have to do a hundred k every month. Um, but no, this I mean this is a a funny story. But I I only started running like any kind of running, not only ultramarathon running, but any kind of running. I only started running in 2016. So it's only been four years. Um, but now it's such a crucial part of my makeup, of my mental makeup, of my my personality that if I, um, this happens so often, but if I don't go for a run 
for two or three days, like my wife can immediately pick that up. And she says, you're, you're acting crappy. You're acting irritated. You haven't gone for a run. Just get out of the house. And she says this many, many times. If I haven't gone for a run for two days, she'll basically come back home and she'll say, oh yeah, you're irritated. Go for a run. And when you come back, we'll talk. Uh, and it's become such a huge part of me staying sane. And I, um, I genuinely have learned so many lessons from the sport of ultramarathon running that I bring to my work. Uh, I mean, the most important is actually just discipline. To be able to run 100K, um, and lots of people do it on a regular basis. I have lots of friends um, who do that. But for me, to, to be able to do 100K um, even once a month means that I have to train a lot for it. Um, and I'm a lazy person. I'm a lazy, lazy person. If you give me the option of sit on the sofa and watch TV all day long versus go run a race, I would probably pick sit on, sitting on a sofa any day. But um, the fact that I set these goals for myself saying that I'm going to run this race and it's 100K and I know that it's going to hurt if I don't train. So that sort of pushes me out of my comfort zone and I just have to do it, which is something that I now bring to my work and I... Um, advice my startups with the same uh, uh i give my startups the same advice my founders the same advice saying that listen sometimes you do have to set goals because otherwise you inertia will not let you do certain things but no just i mean that discipline um is very important in, in any business and so i've learned that from running and i've tried to bring that to my work um, another thing that I, I always pick up from uh, from ultra running is um, uh, is knowing the fact that you will always have ups and downs, and there will be a point in time where you hit a wall. But at that point, at that situation, in that situation, um, all you have to do is just put one foot after the other. So it happens to me a number of times when I'm running a race. So let's say if it's a hundred k race, I know for a fact that about 50k or 60k into the race when i've been running for about 12 14 hours um, i will hit a wall my body will tell me that it doesn't want to move my stomach will will be hurting because i haven't eaten any solid food uh, my mind will be completely empty because i've already thought all of the thoughts that i could have thought uh, really uh, my playlist will be empty because i already listened to all of the podcasts that i had lined up and at that point, it's very, very difficult, especially when you walk into a, a, a the checkpoint at 60K and your family's right there and you can see the car behind them and you know you can just sit in the car and go home. Um, it's very difficult to say, no, I will go back out and do this for another eight hours. But there is this rule that you have to create for yourself, which is one step after the other and you just have to try and finish it. And that's that's what has helped me a number of times. And no excuses. I mean, you can. You have to make sure that you follow the rule. No excuses. And if you do that, then you'll you'll come out of, at the end. Uh, you'll probably hurt. You'll probably cry. I've cried many times uh, on race courses, um, but you will finish it. And that's what is important at the end of the day: is finishing. Yeah, it's uh, having that grit. Being able to set yourself goals are is indeed very important. What is something that's not a secret, but most people don't know about you? That's a, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I'd like to think that I'm an open book. Okay, this is what is a secret, but a lot of people don't know about me, is that I was uh, a theater actor. 
for many, many years. Um, and I, this is embarrassing, but I wanted to be a theater director when I grew up. So I wanted to actually study to be a theater director. And I don't think a lot of people know that about me today. Um, but yeah, that's, um, in fact, that's how my wife and I met. We were part of a theater group. Um, and we did, a, like, we used to perform plays for public, for, for a paid public um, back home in India. We did that for three years, all in, every day. Uh, so yeah, theater was a large part of my life at one point. Sadly, it isn't anymore. I would like to, but just don't have the time. I uh, quite often uh, do actor workshops to help me also with my public speaking. Mm-hmm. I, I I love to do it. I'm I'm not an actor. I I have no intention of becoming an actor, but doing on a regular basis a for instance like a um, a weekend or like a three days acting workshop, having scripts that you have to practice, uh, yep. working on that really helps me with presentation, with public speaking, with just yeah, remembering things, being more yeah secure uh, self-confident when you're standing on stage so yeah i i can also understand that and that's probably also maybe helped you uh, in in later uh, stages of life when you have to give a presentation or that kind of thing yeah absolutely i think it it breeds uh this self self uh, sorry it breeds this sense of self-confidence which is so important because you you go through this process of learning a script and then you deliver it on stage and you know that you've done a good job or at least you've accomplished the the task of being able to deliver you know a script um it gives you a lot of self confidence it really um instills self belief in you so which is always going to be helpful why not if there's one thing you want people to take away from this talk what is it i have over a period of time realized that in business as in life relationships matter and so that is the one piece of advice that I would give to everyone is to never turn your back on relationships, never take actions that sacrifice your relationships or you put, put your relationships in danger. Um, always remember your friends and family are really the ones that will um, help you through tough times and will be there when you need them. Um, in the current situation of the virus and the lockdowns, actually, I'm hoping that people have realized that even more because now they realize what isolation can do to them, um, which is why we've got all of these virtual Zoom happy hours and, and Zoom bar mitzvahs that are happening all over the world. Um, and I and I hope that people take that lesson and keep it in mind even when we get out of this situation because we will get out of it. I mean, this is human ingenuity at work. We will find a vaccine. We will defeat this virus. We will move on to the other side. But... Uh, humans also have a propensity to forget lessons. Uh, so I'm hoping that that we don't forget the lesson that our friends and family are important and relationships are important and, and don't ever um, don't 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 let them um, don't let those relationships decay. Make sure that they are well and alive. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you for your valuable insights and uh, sharing of your lessons learned in startups. No, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for having me. It's fun. Uh, I also want to thank Mizuho for sponsoring this venue for uh, recording. For the listeners, although the rating system uh, of podcasts is hideous, if you like this Maya Culpa series, you can rate this podcast with five stars as a motivation for the makers. Also, if you have anybody that you want to hear on this podcast being interviewed, let us know. Uh, contact details are in the show notes. This is Jeffrey Brewer, 
and normally I would say go out and build something meaningful. But in the current COVID situations, I would say just go and build something meaningful.